Welcome to the Unpacking It podcast with Bryce Johnson. It's a show that unpacks sports, faith, and life with intriguing guests from the sports and entertainment world. Enjoy inspiring conversations and thought-provoking interviews. You'll hear stories from people that will inspire, challenge, and encourage you. Now, from the Unpacking It studios in Charlotte, North Carolina, uniting sports fans everywhere, here is Bryce Johnson. And joining us now is Super Bowl winning quarterback Trent Dilfer. He played in the NFL from 1994 to 2007 after being drafted sixth overall by the Bucks. He won a Super Bowl in Baltimore and also played for the Seahawks, Browns, and 49ers. From 2008 to 2017, he was an analyst for ESPN. He is now the head coach at Lipscomb Academy in Nashville. He is a husband, father, and follower of Jesus. Trent, it's so awesome to have you on Unpacking It. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, we're, we're going to talk all about your, your coaching job and, and about your faith and your story, but, but I want to start in the NFL. And, it, man, we're only a few weeks in, but it seems like it's the season of the backup QB becoming the starter. Giants, Steelers, Panthers, Jets, and Saints all relying on a new guy this week. So who are you most confident in and, and most intrigued to see? Well, I think Teddy Bridgewater um, is the biggest story of this. I mean, it's only six weeks for Drew Brees. The Saints are definitely a Super Bowl-type team. Uh, the backups, you know, the best backups come in and win you half the games. That's kind of the expectation. Mm. I think Teddy has the skill set to do that. I think Teddy could be a starter in this league, uh, and this may be an audition for him. You know, this is six games where he can be more than just a game manager or – you know, a stopgap that he can really be a difference maker, especially the back half of his start. So I'm excited to see that. And then I think Kyle Allen's one, and I'm a little biased here. I'll be the first to admit it. You know, he's <laughs> one of my elite 11 QBs, and I thought he got a raw deal at Houston, and, you know, I thought he should have been drafted. I was talking to NFL teams about him come draft time and really pushing him. I thought he was a mid-round draft pick, and he doesn't get drafted. So Kyle Allen's got a ton of talent. He's the right kind of guy. Uh, he's got what I call DQs, dude qualities. Mm. Teams play hard for him. Uh, he's got everything it takes. He's got a little Romo in him. Mm. You know, everybody's like looking for the next Hasselback Romo, that type of guy. And, and I think Kyle Allen, Gardner Minshew's one of those guys that, you know, they have really high ceilings. They might have been overlooked by the talent evaluators, but they have high ceilings because of all the other stuff they possess more than just arm talent and, you know, physical measurables. No, that, that, that's cool. And, and when you mentioned Teddy Bridgewater, I'm interested too. They, they've said, oh, Taysom Hill's also going to get some time at, you know, at QB, and they use him in a lot of different ways. Just as a former quarterback, what do you think about the way they use Taysom Hill? And if you're Teddy Bridgewater, how do you kind of feel about that? Well, I remember seeing him. I was actually watching Taysom's first game with Steve Young, who's obviously the biggest BYU guy ever. Oh, yeah. And he was telling me how he had been out to Provo and watched him practice. Like, Trent, this kid's literally incredible. Hmm. Like, he, he's an incredible person. He's an incredible athlete. He's a good enough thrower. And then, I, so I followed his career really closely at BYU, and he is a fantastic, I mean, fantastic football player. He became a better thrower. Mm-hmm. And now in the NFL, I think he's the perfect Swiss Army knife. I mean, I think you need Swiss Army knife players. I'm doing it at the high school level. I think they're really hard to defend against. You talk to defensive coordinators, and when there's the threat or just the presence 
of that Swiss Army knife bringing out the scissors instead of the knife, that freaks people out. <laughs> and then you bring out the corkscrew, and then that freaks them out. And I think Taysom Hill does that. He creates space on the football field for your offense because the defense isn't sure if it's the scissors, the blade, or the corkscrew. I love it. I love it. Trent Dilfer, our guest right now on Unpacking It. And so we're, we're you know, week three. We've got all these new quarterbacks taken over. What, what advantages and disadvantages do you think there are when it comes to becoming the starter early in the season versus later in the season? That's a great question. I think early is probably better because you have your training camp reps. You know, you, you got some starters reps in training camp. So you've been working with the starting group. You're familiar with some of the guys. You have your timing down. Where if you get eight, nine, ten weeks in the season, you may have gone that whole time with never working with the starting group because the starter's getting all those reps. So, the, so there's some familiarity there, some timing. Uh, I think the other thing, too, is your body's fresh. You know, you're just – you're excited, you're emotionally, physically, uh, mentally fresh, um, so you're up for the job. What doesn't get talked uh, as much as it should about in the NFL is the job of quarterbacking. Mm. Not the job of quarterbacking on Sundays, but the job of quarterbacking Monday through Saturday. That's a big job. It's politician, it's coach, it's mentor, it's friend. It's You, know, you do a lot of different things in those six days leading up to the game that take a toll on you. So you're fresh. And, and I think all these guys um, have the emotional energy to do that. Trent Dilfer, our guest right now on Unpacking It. What, what insight can you share or what are your thoughts uh, on Eli Manning and, and just kind of in general the transition that top QBs and, and you know, even Super Bowl winners go through at the end of their career when the franchise is ready to move on and they're not, you know, the quarterback isn't necessarily ready to move on. Yeah, I'm having a hard one, with, a hard time with this one uh, for a few la- layers. And I like Daniel Jones, and I-, I was really hoping he got a year or two to sit. Yeah. Here's my issues with this. Number one, the guys won two Super Bowls. You know, the Giants don't win those if Eli Manning's not their quarterback. He deserves a certain level of class, a certain level of send-off. Could have been done this offseason. You know, they honestly could have gone to him this offseason. They could have, they could have let him play out this year and let Daniel learn more. But to do it after two weeks, I think it's a little cheap. Mm. To be honest with you, mm. I don't think it shows him the respect that he deserves. And they also are taking advantage of what a pro he is. They know he will handle it like a Manning because the Mannings only know one way of handling it, and that's with <laughs> the ultimate class. That's right. And the ultimate professionalism. No family handles stuff like this better. And so they're kind of taking advantage of knowing that he won't react, though he'll be classy, that he'll, he'll handle it above board. And three, I don't think Daniel Jones is ready. He may show flashes, and they may, he may show some Josh Allen, and everybody goes, ooh, great, exciting, athlete, big, tall, strong. That's not quarterbacking. And there's going to be a fluff and a false sense of security there. And I'm disappointed because I really like the Giants' leadership. Mm. Like, those are my friends. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I like those guys. I respect those guys. Um, so I'm disappointed that it's gone down this way, but that's my take on this whole thing. I just have such a huge amount of respect for Eli playing against him, following his career. I'm not saying he's the best. I'm not saying he, you know, I'm not, I'm not even talking about what kind of player he is, but he represents the position, the league, everything that you stand for as well as anybody. No, no question about it. Trent Dilfer, our guest right now on unpacking it, Super Bowl winning quarterback, and, and, and on Twitter, you, you've got some videos that it looks like you partnered with Panini America, and, and I'm a big 
collector myself, cards and, and all that sort of thing. So very familiar with Panini. So what, what is the partnership? What are you trying to do with the videos throughout the NFL season? So one of my coolest partnerships in my career, and they took me on more as a spokesperson, less as a celebrity. And it's been really a neat deal because really the, the, what's behind the scenes of that is a campaign called the Super Bowl Panini Kid Reporter. And all year long, as, as collectors go and buy cards at your retailing, retailers, uh, Walmart, Target, wherever you get your cards, uh, or, or hobby shops, oh, yeah. um, there will be codes on the back of the Donruss line, of the Panini cards, and you just submit that code. And, and every year we choose a Super Bowl kid reporter. They go through a video interview process. It's, it's incredible. I mean, the process itself is awesome to see these seven through 12 year olds submit these videos and, and explain why they want to lower themselves and hang out with me for a day at the Super Bowl and all that <laughs> stuff. But they basically get to go to media day with me on Monday. I coach them up on how to be a kid reporter. We go to the front of all the booths. They get to hang out with Brady and Wilson and all the superstars and ask them questions. Then they get to spend the entire week at the Super Bowl doing all kinds of cool stuff with the Panini leadership group. And then, the kid and their family gets to go to the game. So uh, really a lot of it's that, um, me kind of training the kid reporter. And then these weekly videos I do, just taking over from that Dilfer's Dimes brand that I started at ESPN and, and just highlighting a Panini player each week that's doing something really cool. And I just shoot a, a minute video kind of explaining some nuance to that person's game, um, trying to go a little deeper than just the typical run fast, jump high, throw good, <laughs> analysis that you get on TV these days and, and uh, you know, dig a little deeper and try to give the fans something fun to watch on a Tuesday night about maybe one of the players they collect. Very cool. Be sure to follow Trent Dilfer on Twitter, Dilfer's Dimes, at Dilfer's Dimes, and, and check out these videos. His, his latest one is on Patrick Mahomes. And, and so, Trent, I uh, want to talk about what you're up to now as the, the head football coach at, at Lipscomb Academy in Nashville. And, and, and I'm curious, how are you specifically equipped and designed to coach high school kids? How did you know that this is you know, kind of in your, your sweet spot? And, and, and why did you even have an interest in, in going this route? Oh, gosh, that's the big question. <laughs> um, yeah, so a little background. I, I was offered uh, multiple NFL college jobs when I was at ESPN and, and said no to them because I had daughters. And, and frankly, I didn't want to have girls around kind of the football environment. I, I wanted to be there for them, for their stuff. I wanted to, you know, chase their dreams. They had chased mine with me for years and I want to chase their dreams with them. So, um, but my wife and I always knew that once the youngest was out of college, that that'd be probably something I would do probably at the high school level. Cause that's where my heartbeat really was. Uh, was for development uh, as much as the competition. So last uh, winter, um, basically was called here. I don't know how else to say it. I, I, I didn't want to do it. I said no to it multiple times. I was going through kind of a midlife, I don't call it a midlife crisis, kind of a midlife transition mm. where I'd retired at 46, um, kind of had dropped the mic and, and won life to a certain degree and, and was retired and playing golf 200 times a year and, oh, wow. you know, flying around the country, speaking to things and kind of doing some TV and really kind of had what every man had five TVs, five, 16 inch TVs. I watched games on, on Saturdays and Sundays, and then talked about them on Mondays. <laughs> everybody and every day, every dude's like, Oh my gosh, that's the dream job. It kind of was, Yeah. but I, there was something missing. There was a gap. 
not a, there was nothing wrong. Like I try to explain to people, nothing was wrong. There was just a gap. I felt like I wasn't doing anything that the word I've used um, with people is impactful, noble. You know, I felt like I wasn't having impact. There was no nobility. No, there was no nobility in what I was doing, and and got through a weird series of events. God called me up to Lipscomb through a bunch of neat people, and they've won three games in three years. They were kind of a broken. They were for sure a broken program, but kind of a broken school in terms of passion. You know, mm. they lacked passion. They lacked energy. Um, they lacked juice. And really, just kind of came in here with my hair on fire eight months ago, and. And tried to, as I tell people, get the most from the least and the best from the best. Mm. Um, and just pour every ounce of my energy into this community and these kids and the school. And, and not that I have all the answers, but I think, I think God's wired me to be a team builder. Mm. Um, on my whole life, I've been part of building cool teams. And it would take too long to go through it. But, you know, every team I ever went to was better after I left. Wow. Um, uh, and that's every level of my career, um, from high school up and every sport. Um, I've built coaching staffs through the Elite 11. I've built teams through business. And um, that's kind of how God's wired me is to just build teams and develop uh, human capital. That's how I'm looking at this. This is a human development program, Mass is a high school football team. And uh, I think we're having some really good success with that um, off the field, on the field in the hearts of young men and and it's been the by far the hardest thing i've ever done oh, wow. outside of outside of marriage and parenting <laughs> but uh the third most rewarding thing outside of marriage and parenting i put my marriage and then my parenting and then this and then super bowl underneath that i mean this has been incredibly rewarding and challenging and and uh, we're just getting started so that's the story's right. just starting to be written but we're having a lot of fun doing it oh that's awesome trent dilfer with us right now on unpacking it and so you, you mentioned being this kind of builder can, can you pinpoint what it is a, a, about you that that you feel like you bring to the table when you you know whether it's when you played or and, and now as a as a coach when you come and, and this is your perspective these are your qualities that that you bring well, I think number one, and I've had people, men, my mentors kind of teach me this, is when I see somebody, I don't see what they are now. I kind of just see their potential, and I see how if they're completely developed holistically, what that end product looks like. Mm. So I'll tell you a story of somebody that nobody will ever know about. His name's Andrew Hagelgans. He's a sophomore for us. My first day here, the first day in the weight room, I saw him lifting a PVC pipe. Because he was five six, one hundred and twenty eight pounds, oh. and wasn't strong enough to do a snatch with the bar, so he's using PVC pipe. And but I also saw Andrew stay ten, ten minutes after and do you know planks, and I saw him do one arm five pound rows to get stronger, and I saw him do everything in his power every day to maximize whatever God had given him. I saw a relentless work ethic in him. I saw a coachability like none other. I mean, he was all in all the time. He's completely locked in. And I, I said to myself, at some point, at some point, I don't know when, I'm not, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but at some point that kid's going to be so much more than people say he's going to be. That's awesome. Well, Andrew Hagelgans now is 156 pounds, Whoa. probably runs four, eight, is catching balls at the varsity level and making people miss after the catch. Oh and is 
five times as strong as he was nine months ago. He, he takes two extra protein shakes a day. He gets the proper amount of sleep. He's a straight A student. Uh, he's one of our, you know, the guys on our team that people admire because of how he does things. And I don't know if Andrew's ever going to help us win a significant big time game. I don't know if he's got the potential to be a stud varsity player, but he's got the potential to be so much more than he was when I saw him. Mm. And I tell that story because that's how I kind of see everybody. That's how I see a. Uh, you know, a 22-year-old coach that wants to be a GA for me or a sports nutritionist that just is in her master's program and I hire her full-time or an assistant strength and conditioning coach that's a yoga instructor that's the daughter of an offensive line legend who I'm going to turn into a tight ends coach uh, and have the first female high school tight ends coach. And, you know, there's just things that when I see people, I see them as an opportunity to develop their human capital and every part of them. And as you do that, as you invest into people that way, what happens is your performance goes up exponentially. So the investments in people Mm. But by investing in people, you build your team, and then that team's performance raises at a level that you can't imagine. Now, it's messy. Mm. It's hard. It's ugly sometimes. You make mistakes. I I had to trim some fat because I made some mistakes. Mm. Um, You end up with coaches sometimes when you go for youth, when you go for diversity, when you go for energy. You have some coaches that are also very raw, Mm. some players that are very raw, (laughs) and you have to – rain them in at times. Um, but a lot of that's fun too. You know, there's really a joy in, in that maintenance. And I think that's what I've always been able to do. Like I always related really well to the prima donna wide receiver that was living a really bad <laughs> lifestyle. Really? Like people were like, well, you're the, you're the guy who leads Bible study. How can you hang with him? I'm like, well, cause I get him. Huh? You know, I get him because that was me when I was 17. Wow. And I see where he's hurting and I see where he can change. But I could also, at 35, be leading the coach's Bible study as a player. Um, I just always had that ability to connect with a lot of different people at a lot of different levels, regardless of background and cultural differences and political differences and all these different things that, to me, aren't big things. You know, they're, they're opportunities to get to know why a person feels a certain way or what happened in their life to get them to believe the things they believe. Or I had a kid in my office yesterday, sat with me for an hour and cried his eyes out because his parents are going through a divorce. And I was like, man, I was only two when mine did it. But a lot of the stuff that you're dealing with is 17. I also dealt with at 17 when my parents were kind of fighting through me. Mm. And, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I, here's the way I've told people, and and I listen, I still have so much to learn on this job, mm. but I feel like all my life's experiences have led me kind of to this moment. And most people say that when they win a Super Bowl or mm. when they become the CEO or when they climb some giant mountain in life and are at the mountaintop. And I'm a high school football coach. That's mm. <laughs> not real glamorous. <laughs> But I also understand that I think all the things God's done through my glamorous life of being an All-American and a Heisman Trophy candidate and a first-round pick and the ups and downs in an NFL career and a Super Bowl and a TV career and all these different things, like all of that was just kind of a prelude to get me to where I'm at right now, and, and it's just kind of that sweet spot. 
Oh, it's so cool to hear Trent Dilfer, our guest right now on Unpacking It. And, and I was, I was going to ask you a, a little bit about what you just mentioned, and, and maybe we can kind of unpack it a little bit more, but just your perspective on success and, and even being an athlete, being an analyst, there, there's just this natural bent towards selfishness. Ultimately, we all have it, but, but especially as an athlete, as an analyst, it's about you. It's about being a great player. It's about performing. As an analyst, it's about your opinion, what, what you have to share, and, and being entertaining and, and, and captivating for an audience. How has your perspective of both of those things, success and selfishness, changed over the years? And, and how much has you know, your faith affected your view of that and, and God really worked in you to have the proper perspective on being selfless and, and, and being not necessarily driven by selfish ambition and success? Bro, you're good at this. <laughs> <laughs> you, get, you get to the hard ones right away. <laughs> Without a doubt, the number one issue in my life narcissism, selfishness, ego, pride, whatever you, whatever bucket you want to put it, put it in. And it goes back to the time I was the, you know, 13 year old kid that could dunk. Hmm. And, you know, you just, people pour perfume on you. People want to celebrate success. And when you're successful, you hear it often and you start believing it. And it works as direct opposition to what we're called to be as followers of Christ. Mm. And I struggle with it every single day of my life. Um, And it's not just, and that that can sound haughty. That can sound, listen, I've had as many failures as anybody, Mm. but it's this, when you, when you reach a level of your life where you're mature enough to recognize your giftedness, Mm. and then you see your giftedness in action. And you see productivity, especially at the highest levels of your giftedness in action. And it's that transition of saying, okay, this is not me. It is a gift that's been given to me. Mm. And I, I live on the razor's edge of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was confessing last night just some thoughts in my life of pride and arrogance that I don't want to be that guy. Mm. I think the tool that I've used that helps me the most is gratitude. Yeah. I think when you're really thankful for the people around you, when you're thankful for your circumstances, when you're thankful for your adversity, um, it take, makes it less about you, more about them. I don't like the false humility where people are just like, oh, I had nothing to do with that. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. praise the Lord, this is happening. You know, I think that's kind of a false humility, mm. but a genuine humility of, I can't believe I've been given this opportunity and this responsibility and this giftedness, mm. and there's a burden to it. I always talk about the burden of influence, the burden of leadership Mm. uh, for this exact topic. The burden isn't in that it's too hard to lead and too hard to influence. It's that when you do it well, the burden is handling it well. Um, I spoke to a group of boosters this morning called Coffee with the Coach. And, you know, one of the things I, I talked to them about was just kind of this pressure of knowing that these kids completely buy in to us. Like I got... 30 plus coaches and these kids because they're seeing such massive change in their life will do anything for us so we got to be really careful what we ask them to do because they're going to do it that's right so we could just train them to be assassins Hmm. you know we really could Hmm. and they would do it man um i mean they would run through a window if we told them to we don't want them to run through a window, right? We want them to run into another person, tackle them, and then lift that person up and go do it again and again and again. <clears throat> we want them to crush life. We want them to do great in school. We want them to pick up their trash. We want them to leave places better than they found them. You know, so we're looking for things 
life lessons that we can build through football because we know they're going to do that. Um, but there's a burden to that because, again, there's a lot of coaches that earn the players' respect the same way, and then they tell the players to do things that aren't human development things. They're just there to win football games. And uh, we think we can do both. I think the big dream here is that we can build the very best program in the country, uh, the premier high school football program in the country, and at the same time be, build the premier uh, human development program in the country. And, and uh, I think if you do the second first, then the, other one, the first will come second. That's a, that's a great perspective. Trent Dilfer, our guest right now on Unpacking It, won a Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens. You know him from ESPN as an analyst, and, and now he's a high school football coach in Nashville at Lipscomb Academy. And, and as far as your, your faith walk and, and daily following Jesus and, and desiring to live for him, what, what fills you up and what drains you on, on that journey of faith? Again, I, I, I'm known for the Dilfer answer, which is the long answer. So I'll try to do the Reader's Digest, even though this is a podcast. That's right. um, my faith story is pretty unique. Made an authentic decision to follow Christ at 10. At 20, kind of understood more clearly what to make him the Lord of my life look like. But I, those 10 years in between, I, I would say that I, I was genuinely saved. I was just misinformed. <laughs> I hadn't done my my true deep dive into my relationship with Christ. Yeah. Um, my wife and I have gone through what no family wants to go through. We lost our son when he was five and a half. He was our second born. Oh. I think that gave us a very unique connection to heaven mm. uh, is the way I try to explain it to people. Mm. Um, I think that's what fills me more than anything else is what's to come, not where we're at. Uh, when I study God's word, it's more this is a temporary residence. Uh, I think I understand grace and mercy uh, at a very, very deep level. So I, I would say that that is the short answer to my faith walk. I think what drains me is the world. I live very close to the world, too. Mm. Uh, I don't isolate myself to the world. And that, again, that's the razor's edge. I don't want to be unrelatable. Mm. I don't, you know, I have teenage daughters, now middle, now daughters that are getting married, daughters that are in college. I want to understand pulp culture. I want to understand... Um, the pressures they're living in. I, I have a lot of non-Christian friends. One of my best friends is an atheist. Mm. Um, I want to live close to those that aren't following the Lord and understand their hurtings or their their fears and their pain and um, their touch points. And um, so I think I get drained by that because it is natural that it, it, I find myself at times maybe too comfortable mm. in the world. Yeah, and I, I I struggle with that balance just being real. So especially the nine years in TV, I, I, that's such a carnal life. That's such a me centered life. The workforce generally in TV is not a faith based workforce. Mm. Um, I was very spiritually drained by the end of those nine years. Wow. I, uh, I had some dark, dark times just of loneliness and, and that's why I got out of it. You know, that's why I retired. Mm. Um, because, I didn't need the paycheck. I didn't need the fame. I didn't need that stuff. And I sensed a, a gap in my, in my life. And my marriage was good, but it wasn't great. A lot of things were good, not great. Man. I would say that. You know, I, I felt, I was, I was vividly three years ago, I remember I lived in Northern California at the time, and two of my kids were still in the house. One was uh, at Pepperdine playing volleyball. And I remember saying to myself, I'm just good right now. 
I'm not great at anything. Hmm. And I'm very close to being average or bad. And I better make a decision in my life before it goes down to make it go up. And, uh, and that, that was, again, that was just being, you know, one and a half feet into the world instead of two feet being in my faith journey. Well, gosh, there's so much to unpack it, but, but when you look back at your nine years in TV, and, and I'm sure there were awesome times and great opportunities and, and all that, but despite the, the struggles and some of the, the dark times, how do you feel like God used that season of your life? Was it just to reveal kind of what you were just describing, or, or was there something else you feel like there was a purpose in that season of life? Listen, if I've learned anything about God, is He's going to use us when he wants to use us, how he wants to use us. That's right. And he uses us when we're walking closely with him, and he uses us when we're pieces of crud. <laughs> um, he uses us when our thought life is great. He uses us when our thought life is bad. And, uh, yeah, I saw massive. I look back, and I see massive impact and influence and things that God did despite me. I, I, I'm, that, that, that's where I think authentic humility comes in. Like I am truly authentically humbled by the moments in my life where <clears throat> I know I wasn't being a great father. I know I wasn't, you know, being a great follower of Christ, yet he was using me with my kids in a huge way or using me with their friends or using me with a, a, somebody I worked with or using me in the public or using me as a platform speaker, or using me with kids or using me as a coach of coaches, whatever it was, I, I just can't get over that part of God mm-hmm. in such a cool way. I, I think that's like, I, I have, I have a really, and people that know me know, I just speak very real. It's my connection to heaven. I just speak really real about God. And I call them words like cool and um, insanely dope. And, you know, like he just, he just meets me in places that I can't believe he, he would meet me at. And, and, uh, and that's really where I think the, the bulk of my humility comes from is just seeing him do that in my life so many times. Oh, that, that's awesome. So encouraging to hear from Trent Dilfer here on Unpacking It. And a final thought, Trent, just as you mentioned being, being a father, and I'm sure we could do a whole show just uh, about that. I'm a new dad my, myself, and so I'm just curious, just maybe even what God's doing right now in your life as a father. What is he revealing to you? How is he challenging you maybe in your faith, but specifically as, as a father in that, in that role and the all-important role of, of being a father? So here's the biggest thing. I'll give, uh, I'll give a speech in three minutes. That's usually a 20-minute speech I've given all over the country. I, cool. I stole this from a really wise man about, how many years ago? It was about eight years ago I stole this speech. I asked his permission. But he was giving a parenting talk, and he talked about the four phases of parenting, and he kind of did a deep dive into all of them. And he says, you know, for the first two or three years, all we really are is caretakers. Hmm. We're just trying to keep those suckers alive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You're literally, your primary goal as a parent is to keep that kid alive. Yep. Uh, keep him nourished. Keep him healthy. Keep him strong. And then you phase into this cop phase of parenting where you're really policing your child. Hmm. Um, you're teaching them wrong versus right. You're policing their behavior. You're kind of teaching them boundaries and foundational principles as a cop. And then somewhere in the preteen, maybe nine, ten years old, you move into coach. So you've gone from caretaker to cop to coach. And coach is where most of us are most familiar. We we teach them. Mm. It's instruction. It's coaching them through the ups and downs. 
it's it's everything. I'm not. I don't just mean the the football metaphor of coach, but it's the life coach. Oh, yeah. We're teaching them how to do life. I was really good at the middle two. Hmm. The the caretaker one, yeah. My wife did most of that. <laughs> yeah. I did, and she would tell you this. Like I was an amazing cop and coach. It's just how I'm wired. Hmm. Well, here comes the hard one. The hardest of all of them, parents, is the consultant, especially for type A's Ooh. and for moms. See, when they leave the house, we're no longer coaching, and that's the mistake we all make. And that's why kids rebel when they go to college. Uh That's why kids rebel in their 20s and don't want their parents' advice, because they didn't ask for it. Mm. We're giving it, but they're not asking for it. And a true consultant only shows up when hired, (laughs) when asked. And I've had to do this now for six years, and now I'm doing it with two of them. that's what I'm growing as a parent, as a type A OCD control freak. My kids, my daughters, that one's now engaged and one's a junior in college and now the youngest is almost out of the house, they're looking to me as a consultant, not a coach. Now, they'll ask me to coach them at times, and I'm honored by that, Mm. but I'm not in the position to, you know, manage their Instagram behavior. That's not my (laughs) job anymore. It's not my job anymore to tell them how to manage their checkbooks. There's decisions, choices, and consequences they have with their uh, fiscal responsibilities. Uh, I, even relationships. Like, you know, it's none of my business whether I like your boyfriend or not, unless you ask me. And there's a lot of parents listening going, oh, no, he's wrong. No, I'm not. <laughs> this is not my opinion. This is from the Word of God. This is from a man that's as wise as anybody listening combined. Mm. He's been doing ministry for 50-plus years, has raised six amazing kids. That has been such a challenge. I have employee, I have 10 employees that are the ages of my oldest daughter. Oh. And every day I'm sitting here like, oh, my gosh. Like I have to balance consulting with my oldest daughter and coaching these employees. And, and God's really challenged me that way. And it takes a lot of, my wife wants to move like 30 minutes away from work when she moves to Nashville. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually applauding that decision because I need the quiet time in the car. Mm. Like the, my, my best time in life these days are when there's no noise. So I can think through some of these things and pray through some of these things. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is my mom, my wife, sorry, not my mom, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. We're like, how in the heck did these girls turn out so awesome? Because huh. we know we're not that good. <laughs> and I, I said, without flinching, I told her, I said, sweetie, it is one reason, one reason only, because we had great people in our lives when they were little kids that taught us and trained us to pray for them daily. And we are relentless in our praying for our kids. You know, there's a lot of cool things I, I wish I could take credit for with my daughters. But when I look back on it, um, it's been by truly the grace and mercy of God that they are as cool as they are um, because we've tried to screw them up every, <laughs> every single turn and somehow they're awesome despite us. Oh, amen. Well, that's really encouraging, especially I'm, I'm one month in. So, uh, so that's awesome to hear. And just that, that perspective for the long term. So man, Trent really appreciate so start, pr- start praying for their spouses. Now I can, I can show you journals oh, man. when they were, under one year old where I was already praying for their spouses, that they'd be better men than me, Mm. that they would love the Lord Jesus Christ, that their innocence would be protected. I can go on and on and on and on and on. And I've now seen it. She just got engaged to the man of her dreams, and he is an unbelievable man of God. 
and that had nothing to do with me. Mm. That had everything to do with um, a great mentor in my life saying, hey, start right now. And 20-something years from now, you'll be in tears praising the Lord for his faithfulness. And, and sure enough, three weeks ago, she got engaged, and I was bawling my eyes out because of how faithful God's been. Oh, it gives me chills. i, I got to be honest with you. That's, that's cool, man. That's, that's a great story. Wow. Well, Trent, so encouraging to, to talk with you and just to appreciate your, uh, your thoughts on, on life and faith and excited for you and the, this new head coaching job with Lipscomb Academy in Nashville and uh, encourage everybody to follow you on Twitter, Dilfer's Dimes, to get the uh, Panini America videos and, and all your other great content. So, so thanks so much, Trent. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you. See you. For more information about the show, our events, and other resources, visit unpackinit.com. That's U-N-P-A-C-K-I-N-I-T.com. We hope you are encouraged, inspired, and challenged by what you heard today. To support our show and Unpacking It Ministries with a financial gift, visit unpackinit.com slash donate. We look forward to unpacking sports, faith, and life with you again next week.